Hello, this is episode 260, and in it, I'm speaking with a dear friend of Undercover Architect, Sarah Lebner. Now, if you're a long-time listener of the podcast, you may remember Sarah from my conversation with her and Jenny Edwards from Lighthouse Architecture and Science. It was actually one of our most downloaded episodes that year in year three of the podcast, and I'll pop a link to the resource to it in the resources. If you haven't listened to it yet, I highly encourage that you do. Now, Sarah has recently moved home with her family, and she's moved on from being the principal architect at Lighthouse Architecture and Science and she has new adventures to share with us and so also in true Sarah style she's also got loads of clever wisdom and experience to share that will really benefit your project. This is a really great conversation over this episode and the next and it's especially for those of you who are wanting to create a sustainable home if you're building or renovating in a regional location or you simply want some actionable and practical advice for your project. Now if you'd like to grab a full transcript of this episode plus information on the resources that we discuss, you can do that by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 260. That's the numbers 260. Now let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia, and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee. Based in Northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect, and I've worked in the architectural industry for over 27 years now. Having worked on over 250 projects, mainly residential family homes, as well as significantly renovating three homes of my own with my hubby, whilst our three kids were babies, toddlers, and even older, I have a personal and professional understanding of the joy, challenges, stresses and excitement of making your family home a reality. In mid-2014, I started Undercover Architect and it's an online business to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building and renovating your family home. Undercover Architect is all about giving you access to the industry knowledge and insights you need to avoid the mistakes and dramas that can cost you thousands tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's about levelling the playing field so that the world of renovating and building doesn't seem so mysterious. And you can be the active driver in your project, navigating it with know-how and confidence. Undercover Architect helps and teaches homeowners through this podcast, the website and our online courses and programs, including my flagship program, Home Method. I truly believe that when you know the questions to ask, the steps to take and the best way to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in, you can enjoy the process of building and renovating as well as the home that you move into at the end of this ambitious journey. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally, whoever you're working with and whatever your location, your budget or your dreams. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now, let's get on to the episode. Now, as I mentioned up front, Sarah has been a guest on the Get It Right podcast before. Sarah is an architectural colleague that I've never had the chance or good for fortune to meet in person. But as can be the case these days, we are in connection and have built a lovely friendship uh, with each other virtually because we do connect on a regular basis. And Sarah is the most fantastic advocate in and for the architectural profession, particularly on focusing on sustainable design. She also does a huge amount of work to support graduating architects. She's written a book, 101 Things I Did 
didn't learn in architecture school and wish I had known before my first job and has a side business, my first architecture job where she works with graduate architects. In fact, in 2020, Sarah was awarded the Australian Institute of Architects National Emerging Architect Prize. And this prize recognises an individual emerging architect's contribution to architectural practice, education, design excellence and community involvement, which advances the profession's role within the public arena. Until 2022, Sarah worked in Canberra as the principal architect at interdisciplinary firm Lighthouse Architecture and Science. And here she worked under nationally recognised building scientist Jenny Edwards, who was also a dear friend of Undercover Architect. And they focused on achieving high levels of energy efficiency while studying affordability and buildability. Sarah has recently returned to her family farm in Tooma, New South Wales, to focus on providing leading sustainable design services to regional people and communities. In returning to the family farm in Tooma, Sarah established her own practice, Kui Architecture. And Kui is a uniquely regional Australian word. It originated from Aboriginal languages, was adopted by European settlers, and it's used widely today to call out to someone in a remote setting. Sarah is calling out to regional Australians to join her in working towards zero carbon regional homes and building great lives within them. Tune in for this conversation and also part two, which I've got in the next episode. We're going to dive into hearing more about the way that Sarah is shaping this business to work with her regional clients, the principles that you can adopt for sustainability in your future home and specific ways to think about renovating versus building new. We also talk about low carbon projects, house size, designing for farms and the special considerations that that can involve and so much more. And as a reminder, you can download a free PDF transcript of this episode and links to all the resources that we mentioned by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 260. That's the numbers 260. Well, Sarah, it is awesome to have you back on the podcast. It's been a while and I am so looking forward to sharing your new adventures with the Undercover Architect community. You and I, of course, keep in touch behind the scenes. And so I've been really loving seeing you take this new step into your own business, your own work and and your own area and really, really excited to be able to uh, share more about it with the Undercover Architect community. Can you start by perhaps telling us a bit about yourself, your background as an architect and uh, because there'll be those who, of course, may not have heard the original interview. So I'd love uh, you to give some background on that and then also how your new business began. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me, Amelia. As you know, I'm a really big fan of this platform and what you're creating here. Um, So the pleasure is really mine to be able to share with your audience today. Um, I guess your generous introduction sort of covered a resume of my background, but the core motivation for me has always been sustainability. That's why I got into architecture. Um, But there's always been an underlying theme of seeking evidence and context, I think. So at university, I remember learning about solar passive design and northern glazing and thinking things like, hang on, if we're maximising northern glazing here, but also windows are weak points, must be some kind of optimal relationship here. Um, so working with building scientist Jenny Edwards for nearly a decade really fed that need to feel confident in optimising for energy efficiency and value sweet spots. And the same, the same thing applies to being on site with, with builders and trades. I remember specifying a recycled brick and the bricklayer explaining to me that they charged more to lay it because it was heavier and I couldn't specify a certain type of mortar finish because it was um, the brick edges were, were too rough to be exposed. So 
you know, I take my job as an architect really seriously and designing someone's home is such a huge responsibility and I don't think I could do it comfortably if I didn't have that confident big picture understanding of all of those decisions that I make on their behalf. And so after um, a decade of this pretty hands-on science-backed um, experience, we decided to return to the family home um, in the Upper Murray and establish my own practice to give back to my region. And you know, that's a pretty intimidating thing to put your name and decide what your philosophy is. So I put a lot of thought into that. And I remembered a uh, TED talk, very cliche, a TED talk I heard a while back and the presenter suggested that sustainable design solutions needed to be enjoyable and beautiful solutions because that's the kind of world we as humans would fight to sustain. And that was really pivotal for me. And I now believe that sustainability doesn't have to mean sacrifice and that, in fact, successful sustainability needs to go hand in hand with a better quality of life if we're going to, on maths, be motivated to save this planet. So that's pretty deep, but um, to bring it back to very tangible examples, um, I landed on a driving philosophy of helping regional people build fulfilling lives um, and examples of that for fulfilling might be things like um, living ethically, waking up feeling fresh and inspired or being better connected to country and community. Yeah, that's I, I actually, I love the marriage of the fact that, you know, sustainable is better for the planet and it's also better for our quality of life day in, day out. And the two can go hand in hand. And how do we find our own pathway to sustainability through the things that are truly enjoyable and beautiful for us as humans living day to day? And how then appetizing that is for people to pursue a sustainable outcome for their homes and for their lifestyles overall. So and that, it's just fantastic because I can see you know, how the dots have joined now, but I imagine as you're traveling through it, you know, hindsight's a, it's a wonderful gift. <laughs> you can yes. see how everything sort of led you to where you are now, but it's, it's, it's lovely. It does definitely seem that you followed passion and interests and trying to solve puzzles with uh, a very high priority of the client experience, the client's outcome, and that responsibility that you talk of. You know, I, I agree with you. It's a huge honor and a privilege and a big responsibility to spend somebody else's money on realizing the vision and the dream that they have for their future home and their future lifestyle. And when we think about homes being these things that they're the stage for, you know, decades and decades of life and owners beyond the ones that we're working for. It's um yeah it's uh, it's really impressive to see how you pulled this all together. So you mentioned that you're located oh, you you mentioned that you're located regionally, and Kui Architecture serves a regional client base. So what do you actually see are the main differences for those doing projects regionally versus you know in the suburbs and in the city where your previous clients work? Yeah, well, um, on one hand, you've got what we used to call the townies growing up. So <laughs> for briefing purposes, the, you know, those projects might not be that different to a, a suburban house in the city, other than perhaps minor things like you might want a bit more pantry space because you're travelling to a regional centre to do your big shop. Um, and also, depending on the distance from that regional centre, we do need to think a bit more about what materials and products um, are available or um, can be brought in affordably. Um, and, and similarly, who's around, what kind of trades are around and available to do certain things. So that's probably the, um, the, the first point. 
Farm projects, on the other hand, um, do have often have some very unique qualities. Um, so including being off-grid sometimes for all or some services. Often you're designing a master plan for sort of farm operations around the house. So, you know, machinery sheds and dog kennels and driveways. Um, it's more common to be dealing with bushfire challenges. Um, often there are significant views to be balancing with solar passive design. And then in the home itself, it's, um, it's more likely to be important to host uh, big family gatherings, which I'll passionately note still doesn't mean you don't mean a huge house. You just need a clever but flexible house. And for some, um, some farm properties, there's a real legacy consideration. So people who live on the land often have a hope that their family will stay connected to that place for future generations. And look, that's not to say that city people don't also wish that for their home, but there is a certain additional permanence that's usually felt with a, a house on family land, family land. And um, the final point I'll mention is there's this added social pressure in a rural area that I have felt immensely returning to my home community, starting a business, but I also feel it for my clients. So, you know, everyone knows everyone's business and the grapevine is so next level to the point where I had a few project inquiries before I thought I'd even told anyone about my business plans. <laughs> so I think when people take on a project in a small community, they might feel some social pressure or that what they're doing is really sort of being watched and judged by a whole community. Um, and that's a that's a, a big pressure and a big emotional factor in a project. And a small footnote to all of that is that I'm very aware about the irony of speaking about the importance of a family's connection to their farmland over three or four or five generations in the context of Aboriginal families being connected to this country for up to thousands of generations. So that's an important um, acknowledgement I'd like to make. Yeah, I, and that's a really um, important one to make, I think. And I think that how you design to respect the legacy of a family on land that may not have been taken in the best way possible or doesn't, you know, how do you, how do you balance the legacy of one family compared to an Indigenous ownership? And it's a, it is a challenging thing that I think has definitely in the industry, in the design industry is becoming more and more part of the regular conversations that we're having in thinking about how do we design in partnership with country in respect to Indigenous ownership and those kinds of things. So I love that you're balancing that. I also know that when we moved regionally as well, <clears throat> we're in obviously in northern New South Wales and so it, it uh, that, that grapevine is so true. <laughs> it's the oddest thing and it must actually be really interesting for you knowing that that's where you're practising. You know, I moved here and then started all my practice was, uh, you know, I actually avoided working with people that I, you know, would meet in person. I was always working remotely and online, whereas you're working with these people. So there's a lot of pressure, I imagine, to not stuff up, like to make sure yeah, that you're exactly. actually doing a really good job. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, we, uh, I really encourage listeners to check out your website. It is so often architectural websites are terrible. They're really not great at telling the story of what an architect is like to work with. There can be beautiful jewel-like um, portfolios of projects, but very little information on what to expect in the relationship, in the process, and uh, in terms of the visions and the values of the architect so that you can find uh, alignment and like-mindedness in the people that you're working with. And I think your website really pushes against this idea. It really presents very clearly 
uh, who you op- who you are as a business owner, as an architect, and the kind of work that you intend to put out in the world. So it becomes very clear for people visiting it to see if you're a good fit. Uh, and whether your visions are in alignment with their visions as well. And I think it is really important when you're looking for an architect that you do find somebody, it's not just about liking their work, but you want to know that they're sort of showing up in the world similarly to how you like to show up in the world and that you're, you are like-minded in, in bigger picture stuff because it really does help feed into a much more enjoyable design process overall. Your, your, uh, as you said, your work has always been sustainably minded and you've got these 18 intentions on your website that frame your work. You actually say on your website, Kui Homes, shoot for the following goals. Before we commence, these goals are adjusted to your own values, site and budget, and they are then used as a review tool at each design milestone. And I'm going to pop a link to the in the resources of this episode to that page so that everyone can see it, but um, so that they can actually see those 18 intentions. They're set out in three categories. So they're sustainable, intelligent, and simple. And they include things like a minimum 7.5 star energy efficiency rating, uh, the catchment and use of all rainwater, low VOC and healthy interiors, space efficient and flexible living. So you're saying under 180 square meters for an average family home. Uh, materials and detailing focus on durability and practicality and specialist consultants are engaged early for collaborative input. So what actually drove you to create these 18 intentions? And, you know, I can imagine actually honing them down to 18 was probably pretty challenging as well. And what does that actually practically look like when you're working with a client and you take them on this journey? Yeah, well, um, like you've implied already, Amelia, historically architects were conditioned and you almost feel pressure when you're on the inside of the industry um, to hold some kind of mystique around what you do. Um, And I think we really suffered for this as an industry, particularly in modern times, because the public don't really understand the breadth of the usefulness that we have to offer and how can the public value something that they can't see. And, you know, at the same time as this, there's so much greenwashing around sustainability. Everyone and, and everyone claims quality construction. I don't know a building company that doesn't claim quality <laughs> construction. <laughs> so, you know, we're at the point where these words have almost lost meaning. So the 18 intentions um, was my way to list um, in a very direct and measurable way what I hope to deliver for a client. And it also really quickly establishes whether a client and I are a good match, as you say, for each other. So we don't need to beat around the bush. They know what I'm about. And if they get in touch, I know that they've had to download a little info pack before getting in touch and therefore they've self-identified as aligning to those intentions as well. Um, And importantly, they are called intentions because there are many reasons why after, after we meet with a client and review their project needs, we might, you know, shift some of those goalposts. Um, so it, it, it becomes a, a something to work through and reference as we're developing that client beef, brief and, and move some of those goalposts. And then at each project milestone, it becomes a really simple checklist to run through to remind us what we're working towards and how we're tracking towards those goals. And I think that the revisiting of it at each milestone is super critical for ensuring that everybody stays on track because the projects can become a bit of a runaway train where you're kind of bolting in on all these extras and just in cases whilst you're sort of moving through. But to have those to return to 
would be an incredible clarifier for people. Do you find that people sort of look at them and go, I want all the things or, you know, do they, are you finding that um, as people are seeing them, that it's helping them, you know, they've sort of had this idea, oh, I wanted a sustainable home, but when you actually see in a concrete way, well, this is how I'm defining sustainability. It's like, oh, actually, yeah, I want that, but I don't want that. Like, how do you find that conversation sort of happens in that's the setting of those values at the start? Yeah, people usually have sort of three quite clear reactions to each point. It's either something that, yes, they understand and they know they want and they're excited to see on the list, or it's something they're quite interested in but they don't know much about. And then we sort of have have the chat about what it is and what that might mean for them. And then the, the third point, there might be things that that they're not super interested in. Um, you know, I do, I do find a bit of mixed interest in the low-carbon materials. You know, for some people that might not be as much of a priority for them. Um, so, yes, it's... Um, it's useful to reflect and, and adjust those as, as we go through. Yeah. Do you find uh, working in a regional area that the family home under 180 square metres is a point of conversation or contention at the beginning of a project? Yeah, I mean, I'll have to, I think we'll have to answer that better once I've got more projects on the ground. But And I, I will note with that one, just for listeners out of uh, who aren't seeing the whole list there, that I'm referring to just the house size in that. So that takes the garage out of it, which is often a confusing point when we're talking about house size. That's just in my experience, nearly all of the family homes that I've done have ended up under that size. Um, but likewise, sometimes there's very good reason that a house is bigger. It might be multi-generational or they have, you know, a home business that runs out of that house. So far, so far I haven't um, found that to be any different. You know, I think there's the similarities and differences between regional people and city people in some ways we're not that different. And I think the type of people that are coming to me and identifying with that list of things they're already coming understanding that um, a well-designed home can operate really effectively and feel and function a lot bigger than perhaps a comparative home that has more floor space that's not well thought out. Yeah, I actually love it that it's there in black and white, that you're actually sort of raising it as a possibility for people to consider. I get emails from people saying, can I possibly have a family home under 200 square metres in size? And it's like, and I send them a bunch of links to say, yes, you can. And look at all of these examples because they're often obviously looking at much larger homes, as you say, that aren't as well planned, aren't as don't have multi, multifunctional spaces, you know, aren't as well thought out. And so uh, this the the floor plan does become a bit of a behemoth. And so what I'm loving in the undercover architect community generally is that there's this questioning of let's not look at what the footprint needs to be. Let's look at how we want to live. Then let's look at how the spaces are going to serve how we live. Then look at look at how how our budget's going to work with what we can afford to do. And then how do we maximize that for its full potential plus create a site-specific response? So it's uh, you know, it's it's a really, I think that unfortunately, because so many people start with the real estate checklist of rooms and then that feeds into a mathematical equation of how many square meters and we're obviously seeing square meters displayed on a lot of project homes and that kind of stuff um there is that equation of bigger is better but you know you and I both know that that's not the case so um I think it's really exciting to see it played out like that and it flips the starting point of the conversation. You know, I find before defining that, if people are coming to you with a larger brief and you're sort of grappling at how you can reduce it, if you instead start with, well, why can't it be this size? And here are all the options. And, you know, this is what you, all the money you save from doing those things. And then you flip it around to, well, do you want to spend X on adding that? 
um, bit of space there and it becomes a, a, a process of addition rather than feeling like you're um, scraping scraping away from this dream that you've created. Yeah, that's a fantastic way. Great mindset flip on it too. So now something else that you touched on and that you talk about on your website is this idea about working with clients to make their homes carbon zero over the lifetime. So actually doing a certified life cycle analysis and you mentioned that some clients are not necessarily, uh, I suppose, either knowing or particularly aware of it, or it's not on their radar or a priority for them. So what's that looking like for you? Because I know that this is a big area of passion for you generally in terms of where you are hoping your work moves towards. So how, how are you sort of seeing that relationship with clients and that interest growing in the community and how you're sort of working with them in their projects? Yeah, I think their varied interest is just reflecting what's happening more broadly. I mean, um, the the thoughts on this and their availability to to think about these things has really rapidly changed. We've spent a decade getting quite good at energy efficiency, and that was the most important thing for us to prioritise. Um, but now we're at a point where we really need to start then looking at the whole life cycle um, analysis. And so I, I mentioned some people, perhaps it's not a priority or they don't know a lot about it, but there's certainly a lot of people um, that are interested and do know about it. So um, I should say life cycle analysis is a relatively new thing for me as well. But what I have learned so far is that that clever use of space and materials coupled with energy efficient design um, which are the two things I already feel like I can do with my hands tied behind my back, that's two-thirds of the recipe towards a carbon-neutral project. And the rest is maths, really. Um, and there's some great new, very user-friendly tools out there to test and compare materials um, and products and to work out any remaining um, offsetting from that point. So the rapid tool that um, I've been using aims to give you a full life cycle analysis. So that's everything from um, the carbon footprint of the, the, the boat delivering the materials from somewhere right through to the likely maintenance and replacement of material like carpets and how the waste is disposed of when it's demolished. And so this rapid tool aims to quite quickly, so in a couple of hours I could, I could put a house into it, quite quickly give you a rating to an accuracy of 90% or higher. And I think that's pretty wonderful because that's really, yeah, it's opening up access to these tools. Um, it's providing live feedback during a design process so I don't have to wait for another consultant. Um, the power is sort of in my hands to play around with it. Um, and then there might be some projects for whatever reason you would bring that consultant on board and do the, the very thorough um, analysis and advice. But what, what a, a great tool to just open up this world of um, measuring and thinking about that to people more broadly. How do you import the drawings into the rapid tool? Are they done just as it's a PDF? Just a, it's just an a... app with drop downs. Um, yep. So it, it uses a lot of assumptions to get there. But um, what they're finding, so part of the Canberra Low Carbon Housing Challenge um, was a little competition that ran last year where architects entered projects and then um, the team developing it sort of used that then as research to test how accurate they were and um, plugged it back into their sort of full version software and found that they were meeting that goal of that 90% or higher accuracy. So, so it's just, yeah, it's dropped down. It sort of says, you know, how many square metres of exterior wall of this type do you have? And you drop down what the type is. And then if you've got a different wall type, you pop in the square metres and do that. So a fairly easy process um, to go through. 
And to answer your question about what it looks like during a client process, so um, the first step is that really thorough briefing and concept design process so that we are building only what's necessary. Um, I know I keep mentioning that, but it's really important. And I actually refer a lot of my clients to the episode you did with Jane Hillier on enoughness <laughs> while they're waiting to work with me. Uh, the second step is getting an energy assessor involved early to help optimise that design from a solar passive point of view. Um, and an important note on that is it needs to be an assessor who's experienced with a collaborative design relationship. So um, I think it's worthwhile your listeners understanding that some are just expecting to provide a compliance certificate at the end. And then the third is to input that design into the lifecycle analysis app and start toggling some of those um, material options that we might be questioning based on balance with budget and performance and aesthetics. And at the end of that process, you get a scorecard of sorts and you can decide um, where you're going to offset with some additional solar connected to the grid or another offset method. Um, my dream goal is that in two years, we'll be able to claim that all KUI projects end up carbon zero over a life cycle analysis. And Yay. that will go halves with clients offsetting to get there. Um, but I don't, I don't want to prematurely um, claim that before right, there's no more projects on big. the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and look, a big learning curve in there that I'm um, that is will be the biggest challenge in getting there is looking at those off-grid rural farm projects. So um, I started testing that as we plan our own farm build. And it's extra challenging in those projects because the additional water tanks, the sewerage managed, the sheds, and not being able to offset back into the grid does really stack the numbers against you. But, you know, my attitude is that this is something we've got to face in the coming decades. And um, I'm excited to, yeah, lead the charge on working out how we can get there. That sounds amazing in terms of, yeah, I can see you know, that three-step process that you went through for clients to sort of consider how they're going to pull together a collaborative team and then the steps that they can take to get data that actually enables them to make informed decisions about their choices, you know, be it to make a different um, selection of a material for lower carbon embodied energy or be it to change their um, decisions about their windows or their insulation or those kinds of things from an energy efficiency point of view, you know, creating that team that can work with you whilst everything's lies on, lines on a page becomes so critical, particularly when you are, you have priorities like this. So um, I love that that that's how that process is working for you. That rapid tool, is that free or do you pay subscription to that to be able to access it? Yeah, so I'm I'm currently using the one that eTool are developing and it's I think it's $60 per project or some, something like that. So it's amazing okay. really. Um, another group I believe are, are developing something similar is the Footprint Company. Yes. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a few around doing really exciting things in that space. Yeah, and this is something that's been happening in commercial projects for a very long time. You know, these carbon calculations and carbon offsetting and looking at how, um, you know, city buildings can be offsetting carbon through projects that they're doing remotely and regionally and all of these kinds of things has been happening for a really long time because this uh, this awareness of us needing to target embodied energy in our partnership with operational energy to lower our carbon footprint of our built environment has been in the domain of uh, commercial and public work for much, much longer. I love that it's now sifting and filtering down into residential. And I've got members of Home Method who are specifically targeting low carbon homes and they're going through the efforts and energy to find and compare materials and those kinds of things. That is their criteria. 
as well as obviously creating a sustainable home. So it's really great to see that more and more will obviously be able to get access to understanding how to compare materials with materials and to be able to, you know, obviously use software like this is really exciting. So, and I, I have the full faith that you will be able to pull this off in the next couple of years. So <laughs> I know you, <laughs> you tend to achieve what you set your mind on. So <laughs> thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> And that's it for part one of my conversation with Sarah. I, I personally find those 18 intentions that we discussed such a fantastic and clear way for you as a homeowner to have some measurable targets for your project and a place to come back to as you move along your design and your project journey. It's definitely worthwhile checking them out on Sarah's website and seeing how you could come up with specific intentions for your own project because you will find them a great clarifier when you're making decisions or you're getting confused about things as your project progresses. I hope that you also enjoyed hearing how Sarah is exploring low carbon design and the ways that she's supporting her clients in understanding and measuring the sustainability choices more generally. When you can make data-driven decisions, either through carbon calculations or energy efficiency modelling, it definitely can make your choices much clearer. Now, remember, you can access a free downloadable PDF transcript of this episode by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 260. And I've got their links to learn more about Sarah to head it to her website. You can check that out and the, uh, you can also see the 18 intentions for yourself. Be sure to tune in next time. We're going to be uh, sharing part two of my conversation with Sarah. And in that, she's going to share some key tips around retrofitting and improving existing homes in affordable and impactful ways. She's also going to share some key things to consider when tackling a project in a regional location. And in fact, these pointers, they will help you wherever you're located. They are pretty much applicable to any project. Please also remember that if you're enjoying the Get It Right podcast, that you leave a review and that you share it with those that uh, you know it might help. It really does help the podcast reach uh, those who are most needing it for their renovation and building projects. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye. Bye.